morning, CHD. It's Saturday, the 15th of July. And again, I have two fabulous guests who can talk about the WHO, the UN, the global power grab. Um, and they are James Corbett and James Roguski. And I welcome both of you. It's so nice to see you again. And um, you keep me up to date as well as the audience about what's going on. So James Roguski, Tell us what's happened recently at the UN and WHO. Well, um, a couple of weeks ago in June, um, we, the people of the United States, had the opportunity to um, speak directly to our um, delegates um, at the Office of Global Affairs. We had what they call a listening session on June 20th about the proposed amendments to the international health regulations. And so um, Colin McIff, who is one of the um, vice chairs of the working group that's um, shepherding the international health regulations uh, into uh, January when they have to be submitted, um, was there to listen to a couple of dozen people who I am very happy and pleased that um, many people in the United States were very clear and, and very much knew what was going on and spoke their mind directly to our delegates. A little bit more than a week later, on the 28th, we had another listening session, and we spoke directly to Ambassador Pamela Hamamoto uh, about what is called the WHOCA+. Most people refer to that as the Pandemic Treaty. Um, the latest Bureau's text um, was published on, or, or made public on June the 2nd. So we had, again, um, several dozen people uh, speak very um, intelligently about their opinions and very passionately, quite frankly. Um, I encourage people to look that information up. Um, I recorded it. Uh, I haven't seen it on the government website yet. So the whole point of it is, you know, people, we all need to speak up. And so um, what is coming up next week are more meetings um, of the WHO. Next week, there will be meetings of the intergovernmental negotiating body, which is the WHO group that is overseeing what everybody calls the pandemic treaty. I, I've been referring to it for what I think it is, which is a framework convention. And I think that matters, but those meetings will be happening next week. Most all of them have been secret. You know, they meet on Monday and then they disappear. But on Friday of this coming week, they're supposed to have a joint meeting that I believe is going to be public between the intergovernmental negotiating body about the treaty and the working group for international health regulations about the amendments coming together on Friday at the end of the meetings um, that are for the treaty. And then the next Monday also having a joint meeting. And then the remainder of the week, they'll be talking about the amendments. And, and so what they're going to be trying to do is deal with the redundancies in these negotiations. Everybody's been all confused. You know, it, is it in the treaty? Is it in the amendments? What the heck is going on? Why are we doing two things? And, and so um, they're going to be presumably talking about, I think, nine different things, top on the list being equity, um, which I hope we get a chance to talk about today. So coming up, um, there's things to pay attention to because, you know, they're just deciding our future. That's all. <laughs> Right. So the meetings go on. And then in January, we will have presumably the amendments and the, the treaty, the final version. 307 uh, amendments were already submitted. They may say that the submissions have come in on time. And we don't really have to show you the final version until May. And then the public never sees the final version. Is that well, possible? Last year, they were submitted in January by the Biden administration, you know, 2022. Um, and the WHO didn't actually publish them until April 12th. And so one of the complaints at the listening sessions was we have not seen any revised version. There's no version 2.0 or, you know, second draft, third draft of the amendments. We're still looking at the original things from September of 2022 with the purported treaty they've had many different names but there is a hidden document called the compilation text 
it's been rumored to be 190 pages. I've heard someone else say it was 208 pages. But many nations are have voiced their displeasure publicly and privately that they submitted a lot of text in April that ended up in a hidden compilation text, large volume of text that got edited down by the secretariat or the bureau, the bureaucracy. Um, they keep saying it's a member nation led negotiating process. It's obvious that the Bureau's text is not the result of a member nation-led process because the edited down bureaucracy's text is hiding the true intent of the original compilation text, which is being kept secret. You are asking us to comment on something that we are not allowed to see, that the bureaucracy's text is really a venture capital investment prospectus designed to pump tens of billions of dollars annually into the pharmaceutical hospital emergency industrial complex under the guise of equity. But many of the nations are unhappy that the Bureau, the Secretary at the WHO, extracted pieces of it, but not you know, uniformly. And so a lot of the nations, and quite frankly, many of the um, developing nations are unhappy that they feel the developed nations are having more influence over what is in what is essentially the working draft. So, um, you know, it's a soap opera and, you know, not all is happy and wonderful at the WHO and, and that's fine by me. Um, they may very well be arguing amongst themselves, but why are they doing it in secret? That is the question. We were all given an opportunity to comment on things that we're not allowed to see. Not, not good enough. That's just not good enough. Well, I mean, they, they do things in secret all the time, right? I mean, it makes sense to them. And um, they don't want us to know about their negotiations. They don't want us to know, you know, if a third world country comes along and says, you, you know, you promised us 50 billion and now you're only giving us 20, you know, we're not going to go ahead with this. Now we want 60, you know, what are, what are you going to, are you going to up the ante? And that's you know usually how these things work. So they don't want us to see how the sausage is being made, um, and they also don't want us to be accurate in in what we tell people. You know, all we can say is we're telling you what's in the version of the amendments that came out in February, or we're telling you what's in the treaty that came out a couple of months ago. But we have no idea what the final version is going to look like, and they want to keep us spinning our wheels and you know learning each new version as it comes out and being mistaken, that all works to their advantage. Um, the thing is, does any of this matter? I mean, in the end, the US government can print money, so can many other nations. WHO is able to call in a lot of um, chits and, and come up with 87% of its financing, which is voluntary. Um, so presumably in the end, um, the U.S. government and the other powerful entities like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the U.K. government, the German government, um, Gavi and SEPI, which, you know, the three governments and, and Bill and Melinda Gates are the four top funders of the WHO. So they will presumably get what they want in the end. And we know it's not going to be what we want. So, um, so assume all the diplomats and delegates vote in favor of the amendments and the treaty. What do people? What can people do about that? And what can other people in the government? I mean, we have a military, we have police, we have agencies, we have states. Do they need to go along just because some diplomat in Geneva signed their name on a document? I think, like so many of the other problems we're facing, we have to push absolutely every button that exists, if for no other reason than to alert people in, uh, in the general public to the fact that, hey, there's a problem going on, there's an emergency, we need to be pushing these buttons. So I think, of course, I am, as people may or who know my work, I'm not really a fan of the political process in general, but I think the political um, buttons and levers that we can be pushing and pulling here are important and we should be pressing that at every level from the national governments on down, because uh, certainly in the US, in Canada, where I'm from, uh, the healthcare system is theoretically, it's delegated to the states, it's delegated to the provinces. It is not a national um, thing, but of course, 
they're going to simply try to ramrod this through and hope that everyone is not paying attention. And I would hope that at the very least, some state governors and uh, provincial uh, 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 premiers, etc., will start pushing back on this at a more local level. But it has to go deeper than that as well. I mean, beyond the political side of this, I think we need a mass movement of awareness, which will be, I think, as always, the thing that really leads politics is mass cultural awareness and um, and pushing on 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 politicians to, to, so that uh, they can get out in front of the parade and pretend to be leading it. And so I think there there is some element of that that's already going on. And hopefully later when we talk about some of these developments, I can talk about, for example, what's happening in European Parliament, etc. But I think at any rate, I, I just want people to be pushing every button that's, that they have at uh, their disposal. And ultimately, m my sense is there is not going to be the political solution to this in the sense of stopping the amendments or stopping the treaty. It's going to be exiting the World Health Organization until we start questioning the fundamental existence of this organization or our individual states' memberships in it. Uh, I don't think we're going to get to the, the heart of this matter precisely because, as you say, it's all completely opaque. They do everything behind closed doors, uh, unveil it as a fait accompli, and then just pass it in their little closed door meeting and expect that the whole world's going to go along with it. There's no way you can win in that system as it exists. I think until we withdraw our participation from it entirely, we're not going to win. But in order to do that, people have to at least be aware that this process is even happening. So we have a clip from a discussion of three different secretaries of health and human services in the US. And um, let's play that just for a minute and see what they have to say. What is the, the one thing you wish the public understood about the department that you think they don't really now? Uh, given everything you just said, if, I wish people <laughs> would understand that the Constitution left health care to the states. And so as big as we are and as much as we do, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, CHIP, uh, uh, Obamacare, we still don't control or drive health care. Uh, we, the only way we get in the game is when we put money into it. And that's why people do Medicare, because we put money into it. We, uh, states do Medicaid because we put money into it. And it became very obvious with COVID that the federal government doesn't manage health care. We, we don't have a national system of health or public health. We have a nationwide system of public health where 50 different states determine what happens. And so one state may do it better than another. And we're out there trying to make it work even-handedly uh, for everyone in America. But it's very tough because we don't have a national system of public health. Now, you know what's fascinating about that is he never would have admitted that if he wasn't trying to escape responsibility for the disaster of how the federal government dealt with COVID. Okay, so now it becomes a state responsibility. I think I heard Trump do the same thing. Um, suddenly it was the states and the federal government just didn't have any power, but the federal government does have most of the money. Um, but what is important is that people need to be aware he's actually correct. Um, the states do have the constitutional power to manage health care and the federal government does not. So that opens up a big uh, can of worms for the feds in terms of if the Biden administration signs off on the pandemic treaty and amendments, did they have the right to do so because the, the authority for managing healthcare is with the states? So can the feds turn over the management of healthcare to the WHO when they don't have that authority in the first place? Um, when, when I saw um, him say that, my jaw hung open and you know I just wanted to scream at all of the people that I know, I told you so, okay? It's just, that's how the constitution is written. And the problem, comes all the way back to 1948, where we joined the WHO and accepted their constitution. And even in their constitution, which pretty much you know, says they're in charge of health across the board, in the Article 21 that they're using to do regulations, it's limited to five authorities four of which they've been failing at miserably. The one that really jumped out at me was they have the authority, the WHO does, to write regulations about the safety and purity of biological products. And I'm like, it would be really great if they did 
write some regulations about the use of injectables and, and actually enforce standards. They also have the right, according to their constitution, to set standards for nomenclature and disease names and causes of death. And they have done a horrible job on the things that they're supposed to be doing, but yet they want to add 300 amendments that I think far exceed their authority. And, and this is where everybody gets mixed up. Just because someone writes a regulation doesn't mean they have the authority in the Constitution to mandate that you have to do what that regulation says. And, and so what it really comes down to is people understanding, as you know, CHD put in their Health Freedom Bill of Rights back in May, I believe, pretty sure it was May 10th or 11th sometime, where you know, we have rights that no government, you know, the WHO's, you know, intergovernment agency, the federal government, the state government, city, county, local, we have to understand where their authority stops and our rights begin. And that's not what they want to talk about. They want to talk about money. They want to talk about sending more money into the, you know, system that has harmed and, and quite frankly, murdered, you know, thousands of people around the world with poisonous products under the guise of equity, they want to increase their ability to manufacture the products that, you know, I don't want to speak for you two, but, you know, certainly for me, it's backwards. They're not talking about health. They're talking about a transfer of wealth. Yes, I think that's, there's no question about that. That is really um, the, the bottom line uh, regarding what all this is about. Um, and the and the sustainable development goals in particular are about a transfer of wealth. Um, my friend Josh Middledorf found today a UN document. They said it's going to cost five to seven trillion dollars a year to achieve the sustainable development goals of 2030. So it's like, hello, you know. <laughs> Where do they think this is going to come from? Well, they think they're going to be able to make it out of thin air by creating what they refer to with no detail as innovative financing mechanisms. You know, we're going to borrow it. We're going to borrow it from somewhere. But no, who's lending, right? Well, we have to change the risk profile. We have to make banks not... Um, determine risk of their investments the way they always have, but instead we have to throw in all equity and all that sort of thing. Um, now, is anyone going to go for it, or is this just going to be the play money that they print and doesn't have any any uh, real status? Um, but that seems to be what this is about, and all this is being negotiated by a bunch of diplomats, bureaucrats, who have not actually worked at a profession for a very long time, if ever. So they don't know what they're negotiating, but what they can do, what they do is negotiate, right? That's their job, negotiate and try to get as much money for their group or their country as possible. I uh, guess I, I would just interject to say that I, I guess I have a slightly different take because I don't believe that the fundamental bottom line here is the wealth transfer. I think the wealth transfer, the monetary side of this is how they get every player at the table to buy into this agenda. And this is why we see the squabbles open up, for example, with the developing countries saying, hey, we didn't, we're not getting as much of this pie as you said we were going to get, etc. Um, I think fundamentally what this is about is about the agenda for total domination, total control of all resources on the planet. And in the public health sphere of that, that's control of the human resources uh, and management of essentially the human cattle. In the sustainable development goal uh, side of this, it's about uh, the, the management of natural resources, which is why, for example, on the sustainable development side, you get the development of things like GFANS, the Glasgow Financial Alliance, whatever they, they're calling it, um, and the rise of natural asset corporations, that they're going to monetize the natural wealth of the planet and then basically commoditize it and uh and 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 monopolize it that way it is of course i mean money is how you get everyone to buy into the agenda but the agenda is ultimately about the control and i think we shouldn't lose sight of that fact that fundamentally yeah. this is about control which is why it comes back to what we were saying earlier about the the fact that this is ultimately this is about 
no, I have certain inalienable rights as a human being on this planet that you cannot abrogate with whatever ins legal instrument you're working on behind the scenes. But we only have those rights that we are A, willing to stand up for, but B, are even aware exist. And I think that's really the common denominator. And we could see that in the political arena if there was a governor or a state attorney general who was willing to stand up to the federal government and say, hey, this is our jurisdiction, get out. We could at least see this being brought out into the open. But of course, who controls the purse strings? Again, the, it's the monetary side of it is the control mechanism. So of course, the federal government is going to be able to say, well, we'll cut you off if you start kicking up waves, which is why it has to be a people-led movement from the bottom up, because otherwise the politicians will never stick their neck out to make any fuss about this. If, yes. if I may, Meryl, um, I want to bring in another document from another event that's coming up. Um, I believe it's scheduled for September 20th. It's a, a meeting um, within the United Nations. And just to confuse the daylights out of everybody, they have another zero draft of the um, declaration. It's a political declaration, you know, kind of like they have a declaration of North America and they had a G20 declaration. You know, a bunch of bureaucrats going to get together in Geneva, do a bunch of things with the SDGs early in the week and then have this, and then the next day they're gonna be talking about um, universal um, healthcare. And then maybe on Friday, they're gonna talk about tuberculosis, which maybe they'll do something important. But in this document, I have to just joke around with you a little bit, Merle, because as I was reading it, it kept I kept thinking of you and your situation, what you've been through the past couple of years. So I got an M in my notes to this. So on, on page four, they talk about, they, they recognize the need to retain skilled healthcare workers, including doctors, okay? They um, feel that the primary, that primary healthcare practitioners can help address myths and disinformation. They said that sharing experience and best practices in order to have the earliest and most adequate response to any epidemic is very important. Um, then they dove right into, um, they want to have an integrated, uh, integrated one health approach that fosters cooperation between human, animal, and plant health. They, they also want to recognize the consequence of the adverse impact of climate change, natural disasters, extreme weather events, as well as other environmental things that foster, um, they want to foster health in climate change adaptation efforts, okay? Now I thought of you because I figured you would have something to say about that. Um, they wanna finance effective national, regional and global health emergency preparedness to the tune of $30 billion per year. And, and I'll, there's many more, but I'll end on this one. Um, they wanna ensure the health and well-being of health workers, especially for women at the forefront who manage heavy workloads during pandemics, including patient surges and unpaid care. And, and so they use words that sound both crazy and good at the same time, right? If I read that from one perspective and I go, yes, this is explaining the abuse that my friend Merrill has gone through by a system that uses these words in a totally different way. And then they go on to talk about climate change and, and animal health. And, and it's just like, none of that comes into, I, I, I couldn't imagine any of that coming into play, envisioning Merrill, you know, treating a patient in your office. It, it, this is what they're going to be agreeing to most likely um, in the middle of September to drag the United Nations in, you know, with the WHO and the treaty and the um, amendments, they're going to have a political declaration that um, I shared this with Catherine Austin Fitz and, and Carolyn, and, and they're like, oh, I've read a lot of legal, you know, things through years and years of study. She literally said this, Meryl. She goes, that's gobbledygook. good. <laughs> that's my word. <laughs> yeah, they, but you're absolutely right. They do make things sound really good. We're going to help women and, and girls and children. We're going to get rid of poverty. We're going to get rid of ill health. You know, everybody's going to, everything's going to be wonderful because we're going to tell you how to do it, but they never say what, how they're going to do it. And 
they hate to admit that we're actually going backwards, that because of these stupid regulations that the, there weren't regulations, they're recommendations that the WHO made and that the countries went along with, and we don't know where, whether they came from, where they really came from, they came from globalists, but they you know, put another 150 million people into severe poverty. They led to many deaths, we just don't know how many, but probably millions of deaths from starvation because people were thrown off the land they were working. They were told, you know, people in India were told to go back to your home village, you can't work here anymore. So they, they lost their jobs and, and they're living hand to mouth as is. Um, it, you know, it's, it's crazy because they make it sound like they're gonna give you the world and then you say, what have they given us? And they've given us virtually nothing of value, certainly in the developed nations, nothing of value. And in the um, developing nations, you know, maybe a, a little, they throw a few crumbs for, for malaria and tuberculosis and AIDS. But of course the global fund does that too. So what, what do we need the WHO for? If the global fund for tuberculosis, malaria and AIDS is already doing it, um, there doesn't really seem to be a role for, for the WHO for, for most of us. Um, so, you know, it's, this isn't just the WHO. As we talked about before, in the United States, the National Defense Authorization Act last year um, basically codified into US law the, all of these recommendations and, uh, in the amendments and the treaty of the WHO. The One Health and, and the Pandemic Preparedness Agenda, the surveillance, you know, all of that. Now, what I discovered this month since our last program was that the European Union had issued a um, report on global health. They call it the global health strategy of the EU. And the European Commission has issued this. It's official and what does it say? It's the same sad stuff. It says suddenly global health has been turned into this WHO global agenda. It's not about health anymore. Uh, in fact, they say, well, the old way of looking at health was we looked at your disease. We just dealt with you, you know, insofar as what disease you had. You went to the doctor, you know, you had malaria. We treated you for malaria. Ah, but now we realize we're so much smarter that your disease is actually due to your socioeconomic condition. And so it's due to your diet and the climate and the animals around you and all of this stuff. So now we have to forget about the malaria. We got to treat all this other stuff, you know, your social status and everything else, which of course is, you know, it doesn't make sense. If someone's sick, you've got to treat what they're sick for. You know, you know, yes, on a global scale, we do need to solve these social problems. Absolutely. But they're mixing up social problems and going to the doctor. They want to stop, basically what it appears they want to do is stop you going to the doctor. They want all your health digitalized. Um, they want it in the cloud. They're specific. They want Everyone has to have a digital ID and digital health records. It goes into the cloud and then you can be treated wherever you are by some computer somewhere, right? You don't even have to go to the doctor. In fact, you don't need to go to the doctor because now all we have to do is deal with your socioeconomic condition and not your malaria. Um, so that seems to be what's going on. Uh, let me um, just show the uh, picture of this uh, booklet that called the EU Global Health Strategy. The next thing they say, all pathogenic threats have to have the One Health approach applied. Uh, as well as what they call integrated surveillance. So I'm not sure what integrated surveillance means, but I think we know that there's two kinds of surveillance that the um, amendments and treaty want, and that is surveillance of your electronic communications to get rid of misinformation and apply censorship. And the other is to be able to swab animals and humans at will because they're going to be looking for the next potential pandemic and they want to stop it in its tracks. Vaccines are critically important. What this document says is they're not only interested in developing vaccines for infectious diseases, no. They want them for non-communicable diseases. That is, they want them for everything. They want cancer vaccines, diabetes, 
hypertension vaccines, you know, acne vaccines, you name it. They want to focus on vaccines. Another thing they want to do is to continue to say that antibiotic resistance is a huge problem, when in fact it's a relatively minor problem in medicine. And because it's such a huge problem, they claim, we're not going to be able to use antibiotics. So we have to give you vaccines for all sorts of communicable diseases, infectious diseases, for which we already have antibiotics because they're worried that we're, we're, there's going to be resistance. So because these bacteria may develop resistance to your antibiotics, we can vaccinate you and that's gonna solve the problem. In fact, it doesn't solve the problem because um, the bacteria can develop resistance to the vaccine strains as well, but they're not telling you that. Um, another issue is this mem, this story that I've seen over and over and it's repeated in this European Union document the pandemic cost us so much money, cost the United States 10 or $15 trillion. So what's the answer? We have to spend billions on pandemic preparedness to save trillions, right? And we have to figure out a way to sustainably finance the WHO. They love the word sustainable. What it means in this con, it means different things in different contexts, but in this context, sustainable means they want to put in a mechanism where every country is forced to give a large sum of money to the WHO every year. And um, it's interesting that they want to do that because um, right now the countries, as we've said before, only uh, contribute 13% of the WHO's budget as an assessment, a required amount. And then the other 87% comes to the WHO from voluntary payments by countries, by companies, uh, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, by Gavi and CEPI, which are supposedly nonprofit vaccine companies. Um, and so that worked because the funders could get the WHO to do what they wanted. So it worked in the WHO and the funders' interest to have a very small amount uh, contributed by assessments and most of it voluntary. Now, how they're going to try to make countries contribute huge amounts of money to the WHO in future um, is interesting because they're probably not going to want to take away the power of the funders, but um, I'm sure they'll figure out a way around that. So um, they're big on global governance. They want, they they want global health governance. They don't say a one world order, but global health governance starts finding its way into these documents. They do want to strengthen the WHO and that includes strengthening enforcement. And so then I say, why, why is this happening in Europe before it's happening in the United States? And there are several reasons. So one is that the EU has already impinged on national sovereignty. They don't have the kind of national sovereignty in Europe that we do. Most of Western Europe doesn't allow its citizens to have guns like the United States. And Western Europeans trusted their governments a lot more than Americans did during the pandemic. Um, and in fact, Europe had much higher, certainly Western Europe, much higher vaccination coverage, especially for the booster shots um, than the United States did. So the only 34% of Americans took even a single booster, whereas in Europe, it, uh, in almost all the European countries, it was well over 50%. There's certainly something in there that you said that I would like to touch on because um, in all of their documents, I've realized that the lack of one word makes all of the difference. They say many times the pandemic caused this, the pandemic caused that, but what they don't differentiate is what was caused by any type of dis-ease, what damage, what you know, death or, or sickness or monetary or emotional cost versus what was caused by the pandemic response. They don't want to take blame or, or 
you know, accountability for the fact that their cho their choices, their chosen response caused much of the things that they're now trying to fix by doing more of what they did. The, the monetary losses, the change in, in health of people around the world, all of the things that made their social development, I'm sorry, their um, sustainable development goals less you know, reachable was due to the mistakes that they made, the choices that they made, the withholding of early treatment, the um, loss of jobs that you mentioned earlier, all of the things that they did were the reason why they're having difficulty achieving their sustainable development goals. But you'll never hear that come from them. Right. They'll tell you that it was um, the WHO and the federal government's policies that saved us from. And, and they can't admit that they did anything wrong because, you know, that would really impede their, their agenda and what this was all about. Yeah. It's, it's the old, uh, the old trick of basically any failure is an excuse to take more power and more control and more money, et cetera. And we see this time and again through various different events. And before we do move on to some good news and positive signs, which I think we should, but before we do, let me further complicate things because we've already raised the specter of the UN General Assembly high-level meeting that will be taking place in September. And we've talked about the EU's document. Well, let's talk about another UN process that is also going on that I think uh, definitely impinges on, on this whole subject, which is our common agenda, which has been launched formally by the current UN uh, Director General uh, Guterres uh, a couple of years ago. And what is happening right now is a years-long process that will supposedly culminate in a summit of the future in September 2024, at which they will be unveiling this agenda and its various aspects. But in the meantime, they've released a number of working papers on a number of different topics. And uh, particularly, I think their second uh, uh, working paper, their policy brief on strengthening the international response to complex global shocks dash an emergency platform is particularly relevant here because the idea here is that the UN is seeking to create something that they're calling an emergency platform, which would not be a standing body or an entity, but a set of protocols that could be activated when needed. And what specifically are they saying are the types of things that will cause this to potentially be activated? Well, just such things as, of course, large-scale climactic or environmental events, high-impact events involving a biological agent, events leading to disruptions to global flow of goods, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, future pandemics with cascading secondary impacts. So they are already starting to talk about different ways that they can power grab on the back of the next pandemic, which Bill Gates assured us will be around the corner and which we'll definitely pay attention to next time. So uh, I, I, again, it's it's just another uh, iteration of this theme that is going through all of these different documents, all of these different organizations with all of these separate agreements and protocols and uh, calls for action, etc. And I think it is, uh, to some extent, the the multi, the, the, the overlapping and, uh, and it's sort of redundant nature of this partially is, I think, part of the game that's being played. Okay, here's this big World Health Organization treaty, convention, whatever we're working on. Everybody concentrate on that. And meanwhile, they've got 17 different ways that they're doing all the same things through different organizations. Another part of it is simply if the public hears it enough, from a number of different angles and vectors. And it seems everyone in public space of any sort is talking about how we need to prepare for the next pandemic and this is how we do it. And this is, this is how many billions or trillions it will cost us. Eventually people will start to accept that that is reality. And I think that's part of the conditioning process that we're under right now as well. If I can sarcastically add a couple of things that um, put a smile on my face, um, they would have a protocol to protect us against black swan events and events from outer space. So it's good to know that they're planning. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, well, well, the, see, what the UN has said is that there's certain space in on the planet and above the planet that is common, that no nations take jurisdiction for. So a lot of the oceans, for example. And, and outer, so outer space is one of the few areas and these parts of the oceans where they can say they're in charge 
And so they would like to regulate, for example, um, satellites, you know, it, it makes sense. I mean, somebody should regulate them. I mean, right now, anybody could push up a satellite if you want to. I don't think there's any. I'll just, I'll just parenthetically add that NATO actually declared outer space to be part of its operational domain a couple of years ago. So <laughs> they're, they're already there. Don't worry. Yeah, it's like we put a flag on the moon. <laughs> Maybe if we got there. Uh, I, I'm, I'm being sarcastic myself. I don't think we got there. But um, we may have sent a, a, a capsule up with a flag. Well, so the UN is, in fact, so what the Secretary General of the UN has said, he's going to ask the members of the General Assembly at their September meeting to give him the power to create this emergency platform. And then presumably next September 2024, they can vote on it. Meantime, the WHO and the UN are negotiating together. Wait a minute. Why is the UN saying it wants to take jurisdiction over pandemic emergencies is, is one, and then biological warfare emergencies is another? Wait a minute, that was our area. You know, let, let's harmonize this so we can both agree and we don't have to fight over, you know, d dominion uh, when one of these things happens. Um, well, as James said, you know, it's about control. Yeah. It is about it's about control and it is about money because they want to get uh, nations and people in a debt trap. Right. They're they're saying we're going to come up with these trillions of dollars and you can borrow it to get yourself up to speed on this global bio defense agenda. And then, you know, we'll keep monitoring. We're all going to spend a ton of money uh, on this bio defense agenda. Um, global pandemic preparedness. Meantime, everybody gets more and more into debt, right? And then up, oh, nobody can pay. Nobody can pay. All right, we'll take your airport, we'll take your port, we'll, we'll take your mining operation. And um, little, slowly they, they get everything. A, a little bit of good news that I came across. Um, in the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, one of the pieces of that puzzle was the creation of the World Bank Pandemic Fund. And they reported recently that they're coming up really short. They had, um, earlier in the year, they had taken uh, applications or submissions for you know, how to improve the resilience of healthcare systems. And so they had a lot of um, organizations looking for money, but as it turns out, they have not raised as much money as they need they won't come out and say this, but quite frankly, so far, it's a miserable failure. They have not proven able to raise the amount of capital that they would like to have to you know, implement the global health security agenda, which you know, I just want to repeat so everybody knows, global health security is a totally different thing than what you think of as personal health. Global health security is a Defense Department really agenda. And in that video um, clip that we had with um, um, Javier Becerra earlier, later in that clip, uh, former Secretary of Health and Human Services, Alex um, Azar, said very clearly that the Warp Speed Project was a defense operation. He told the whole story about them airlifting a part that was needed you know, to make it all happen. And um, Kathleen Sebelius, who was the HHS secretary under Obama, talked about how, you know, people don't realize, but the Health and Human Services Department has boots on the ground, doctors, because, you know, a lot of nations don't like it when the military shows up to implement the global health security agenda. But when they have people in white coats and stethoscopes show up, um, you know, I watched a movie, I won't say what it was, but, you know, Doctors got into places that, you know, doctors um, are able to get into because they're trusted in a different way. Very entertaining, actually. Um, whereas military, you know, does get a little bit of pushback uh, in, in political um, realm. The HHS is an arm of our global health security agenda, and, and they're proud of it. We're spending money to put... Um, I don't know, um, what do you, Meryl, help me, you know, what do you call the shoes that you're wearing when, you know, you're in surgery or something? You know, they, booties on the ground, maybe, I don't know. Um, they don't want to have the military do everything. 
it's often more convincing when you have someone who looks like they're there to help you and improve your health when that's not what they're really doing. Such an important point. Thank you for bringing that up. Yes, absolutely. Yes, soldiers will get pushback and people will see that for what it is. But yeah, if they've got uh, if they got scrubs on rather than camo, then hey, let's open, welcome them with open arms. It's such an important point that is part of the reason why medical martial law in some way is more insidious than martial law, because people are more willing to accept health authorities than they are military authorities. Yeah. Well, we have the um, Public Health Service, which is a quasi-military organization. We've got, I think, 6,000 people at least in the Public Health Service. They wear uniforms. Uh, many people at HHS and um, at CDC and FDA are in the Public Health Service. Mm -hmm. So they have to behave, you know, like military people, military officers, um, and do what they're told um, uh, as needed. Yeah, um, Rachel Levine is an admiral, even though she never had any rank previously. So she's, anyway, it is what it is. So a little bit of additional good news. Um, in, in Europe, uh, there was a group of lawyers who put forth a um, declaration, you know, pretty much uh, advocating uh, to all nations to stay away from these negotiations with the quote unquote pandemic treaty and the amendments to the international health regulations. And so, you know, it's good to see that that profession is beginning to pay attention. And also um, uh, a citizens group, um, which I'm you know proud to know some of the people who were involved, uh, shout out to Justina Walker and uh, Philip Cruz and, um, Christine Anderson and many others, I'll forget many of the names, I'm very bad with names, but the um, uh, European Union has a unique process. It's not a petition, that's a separate thing, but they have what is called a citizen's initiative. And so there were many um, members of the European Parliament who spoke out strongly against the attempts of the WHO you know, to do exactly what it is they're trying to do that we've been talking about. And so, um, you know, much praise to them for bringing that to the European Union Parliament. And uh, maybe last but not least with, you know, news of what's really going on, um, we're getting very close in the United Kingdom with a petition to request a debate about the amendments. Uh, last time I checked, we're up around 92,000 signatures um, anybody can go to uk.stoptheamendments.com. If you're in the United Kingdom, if you're a resident or a citizen there, you can sign the petition. But if you're not, please spread the word. Because while they did have a discussion of the proposed treaty back in April, uh, they still have not actually addressed the reality that last year at the World Health Assembly, they did adopt amendments to the international health re regulations. And I think everyone is in some state of coma in failing to acknowledge and understand that that actually happened. Our unelected, un you know, appointed, unaccountable delegates agreed to change international law. And there's an 18 month period that ends on December 1st of 2023 where that small group of amendments, five of them, um, could be rejected. But they refuse to even have a discussion about them, let alone have a vote or have the people weigh in about whether or not they want that. And, and so um, hopefully people will um, spread the word throughout um, the United Kingdom to tell your friends to, to um, sign the petition, get it up over 100,000. I am under no illusion that Parliament is going to change their ways and suddenly realize that they are not going to be asked to vote on whether or not to adopt amendments this coming May. They don't seem to understand that they lost that authority when they joined the WHO 75 years ago. They're in for a very rude awakening that the Russian amendment that's proposed to Article 4 would require nations who have adopted the amendments 
to enact legislation to implement whatever the obligations were. So parliament and Congress all around the world are, are going to be told, this is what the executive branch has decided. You're going to implement it. And so that's a workaround where it, it's an attack on the individual freedoms of each individual person within the nation that's going to be under attack by the people within their own nation. And, and this is something that I, I hope people can wake up to it because when I've seen people recognize what I've been trying to say for the last year, when the light bulb goes off, they're horrified. They, they can't believe that it's set up this way. But the, the, the tyranny of our own governments against our own people is about, we're, gonna, we're about to come face to face with it all over again, just like we have over the past four years. But do you think that maybe the fact that the Russians put forward that amendment saying that each country is obligated to enforce these WHO amendments on its own population, that that was really a very clever way for them to avoid a UN peacekeeping force or some other multilateral organization coming in from outside and imposing the amendments in the treaty on your nation. This, if this is adopted, it means Russia doesn't can, cho can choose not to enforce it on its own people, and there won't be any other way from outsiders to come in and enforce it. So it, it's actually, in a way, giving a, a piece of sovereignty back to the nations. Um, in the essence that it gives the WHO the linguistic maneuver to be able to say, well, we're leaving it up to your nation. And what we've seen, you know, certainly in Western Australia and California and New York and all around the world, quite frankly, is federal governments, state governments, provincial governments, cities, counties, um, they are actually worse than the WHO. They go to the extreme to give themselves power that is not in alignment with their constitutional authority. They pass regulations, they pass laws that are blatantly unconstitutional, infringe upon individual rights, Whereas before they could say, well, the WHO made a recommendation, so this is why we're doing this. There's no force of law or authority there. They're gonna now be able to say, well, there was a treaty or there were these amendments or there was some kind of legislation. But the end result is we, the people, need to become aware that we have lost control of our government on whatever level you wanna deal city, county, state, province, you know, federal level, the people who are in power are listening to globalist organizations and ignoring the people that they actually work for and are responsible and are supposed to represent. And it, it's going to become very clear if the UK petition gets up over 100,000 and the UK parliament ignores the will of the people, we shall see what happens. I still think what Russia did in bringing forward that amendment was say, look, you know, the WHO can issue these directives, but if we don't want, if we don't like them, we're not going to enforce them. And that may very well be the case. And raising the awareness that that amendment exists, okay, um, probably the first time it's been talked about, you know, in, in any, you know, substantial news media organization, there's 307 amendments. So people talk about this, that, or the other. And, and that obligation, which is also in the quote unquote treaty, um, I believe it's in article three, section two, where they say, well, you know, the nations are sovereign, but they shall implement <laughs> regulations according to their rules and constitutions and all yeah. that sort of stuff. So, yeah. you know, this is going to continue to be, while it's, we've got to worry about Geneva and, you know, London and Washington and all of the other um, capitals and what's going on there, it's ultimately the battle is going to be local all over again, because the way all of this insanity gets enforced is by the people that you deal with on a regular basis 
just not understanding where their authority ends and your rights must stand. Yeah. No, this is it. It, it. I think you hit the nail on the head. This goes back. This isn't just something that's the past couple of years has come up. No, this goes back to the 75 year process. Now it's been 75 years since this fundamental sovereignty has been abrogated and has been breached and has been handed over. And until we recognize that, how on earth are we ever going to say actually no? Um, and uh, they actually know will have to be a complete and total withdrawal from World Health Organization. I don't think anything else suffices at this point. But yeah, we probably have to go through the learning curve of people realizing, oh, wait, oh, there was not going to be some sort of vote on this, etc. And although I I understand the appeal of 5D chess moves of, okay, we'll put it in writing so that then we can do it, we can ignore it without getting, I, I'm not so hopeful that that's ultimately how this is um, meant to play out or going to play out. I think that might be a sock to the people um, in each individual country who then can be placated by the fact that, don't worry, this isn't something that's being enforced from the outside by the WHO, we're choosing to do it. So it is, it, see, we still re retain our national sovereignty. Etc. Etc. You see how this goes, but it comes back down to the people and the people's awareness of this issue. And going back to that European parliamentary presentation that you mentioned earlier, there from that uh, Trust and Freedom Citizens Initiative, I was watching some of those presentations, and it was remarkable to see politicians and members of European Parliament using things that pretty much are word for word what I have said before. For example, population control in every sense of that term. Um, and they were talking about digital health ID and uh, uh, vaccine passports and what have you as a form of control of the population, but also literal population size control, which can be um, put in the back door via vaccines. Wow. You know what? Politicians are talking about this. Well, now there are some. And I honestly think that's a hopeful sign, if not because of what that portends for the political process or the political nature of this, but what it means in terms of the awareness of these issues getting down to the, 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 the people's level, which is where I think the politicians draw from. And they, as I say, they love to pretend they're leading a parade. I'm glad the parade is growing and more people are aware. And anyone who's watching this conversation is doubtless aware of these issues by now, at least in broad form. That's why we need to, as hard as, as ever to get the awareness of this out to everyone that we know, because this, uh, this is really the culmination of that, uh, that battle that, we didn't even know we were fighting for the last 75 years of the creation of the post-war order and and everything that uh, that that means in terms of the abrogation of national sovereignty well it's coming to a head now and i think people need to be aware of these issues um so that so that as you say the the fight will be local and it will it will t ultimately turn into a more of a social phenomenon than i think a political phenomenon all right so um the good news, I guess, is that politi some politicians are waking up and are willing to speak openly about this. It's not something that you can whisper, or you can only whisper about because people say you're crazy. That's good. But it's only seven parliamentarians. It's not a growing number. It's the same seven who were involved with the International Soviet, uh, sorry, COVID summit that I attended a couple of months ago. Um, it's Andrew Bridgen in the UK. There's nobody else standing with Andrew Bridgen, but he's willing to, to talk about this. In the United States, though, it's a growing number. So we really do have a, a bit of a movement here. And um, a lot of things are happening at various levels. So at the very local level, Collier County in Florida, um, they passed a, a resolution. Okay, it's just a resolution at the level of the county, but it said, we're not going along with mandates. We're not going along with vaccine passports. We're not going along with masks. And we want to get out of the who. That's important because even though it doesn't do anything at a legal level, it still tells people this county is thinking about this and is concerned. All right. Another level is in South Carolina, the Republican party actually voted a resolution that the South Carolina Republican party is directing members of Congress, Senate and House to sign on to bills to get out of the who and defund the who. So that too, very, very impressive. It's a big start at the state level. The House bill, H.R. 79, to exit and defund the WHO, has 50 co-sponsors. 
there's now a Senate bill and a House bill that say the Senate needs to go through its advise and consent process when the pandemic treaty comes up. They're, what that means is they're not going to allow some person from the State Department to sign on, but they're going to demand it be treated like a formal, full-fledged treaty and get the Senate to ask questions about it, etc. That um, the bill in the House requiring that has 47 co-sponsors. Unfortunately, all of these people are Republicans. We got to get the Dems educated, but still, 47 co-sponsors. And then there's a similar bill in the Senate. Um, I'll tell you those bill numbers in a second. There's another bill in the House to uh, take away funding for the WHO, and that's HR 343. That is Chip Roy's bill. The House bill to require Senate approval of the pandemic treaty is HR 1425. And the Senate bill to do the same thing, same name, no WHO pandemic preparedness treaty without Senate approval act. That Senate bill is S444. Okay. So um, what we also have right now, as we're taping this, on the 12th, the Appropriations Committee of the Senate is marking up their bill for what they're going, what the United States government is going to spend money on next year. And the Republicans agreed, almost astonishingly, when they did their original markup, um, this was just the Republicans a few weeks ago, they took away all funding for the WHO. Also, for the, they said no more U.S. involvement with the World Economic Forum, no funding for the Wuhan Institute of Virology, no funding for Peter Daszak's EcoHealth Alliance. That was put into the Republican version of the bill. Now, today and probably tomorrow and maybe the rest of the week, the full Appropriations Committee, Republicans and Democrats, is working on that bill. We will see if they put back funding for the WHO and these other organizations or not. Um, I've encouraged people to contact their representatives. This is a House appropriations bill. And uh, let's find out what they're doing. The bill is probably not gonna go through for two or three months. And so we still have time to keep talking to our members and our senators about this. Defund the WHO, exit the WHO, that's what we want. Um, and after that, we may need to do the same thing for the UN, but we don't know yet whether that's the case. Um, any other comments? I will just second that. I've been working with people all around the world and um, to learn about what's going on in the United States, you just go to exitthewho.com and exitthewho.org is worldwide because we're all in this together. Um, you know, just if the United States leaves the WHO, um, that's not actually enough because if they were to institute a global digital health certification network, the United States wouldn't be a bad place to be trapped, but um, it's not good enough. We, we need to have our freedom completely and any infringement upon it, is, you know, for anybody on the planet is unacceptable. I will just reiterate and, and underline that. I think that's true. I think what we're going through is the process of understanding the sort of the level of the interrelated nature of the problem that we're facing and the World Health Organization and everything that it's pushing is one aspect of that. We are flexing our muscle, realizing we have muscles, starting to flex them in the direction of that. And once we conquer that, then we can start thinking about these this entire web of uh, different organizations that are trying to do the same thing. I don't think it starts or ends with the WHO, but it's a good place to start at least to discovering the process. Yeah, I have to say, I agree with everything that both of you have said. Um, so to, to conclude, um, I am helping to give birth to a new organization called Door to Freedom. And the purpose is to make it easier for everybody to get the tools they need to fight this WHO power grab and any other globalist power grabs that also uh, come in front of us. And um, so we will have uh, a website up this weekend and there will be um, 
an interview with me about the WHO on Joe Mercola's uh, channel on Sunday. And we hope the, the website is Door to Freedom and we wanna give you everything you need, all the information you need to fight this. Um, if you have more information that we're missing, we wanna put it up, go to the website, look at what we're doing, and we hope to involve a lot, of, a lot more organizations in this effort, but we're launching this, uh, this weekend. So um, please uh, go to the website and see what we have to offer. Thank you.